We're back again with a, another Patrick podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's what we're going to call it from now on. I'm back whether you like it or not. Yeah, you've got a lot of booze at the moment. Actually, tell a lie, um, there's been a lot of positivity um, coming from your episodes, especially the one about directors. You've had a few comments saying he knows his stuff. Yeah, it's much appreciated. Thank you. So today we're going to look at film again. But this will be an interesting one because Pat's watched a lot of films and he started very young. And so we're going to look back at his film history and he's going to look at every favourite film per year. Is that about right, isn't it? Yeah, so not the films I saw in that year, but every year I've been alive. My favourite film that released that year. Okay. So I was born in 2002, so my favourite film in 2002, all the way through to 2021. Perfect, okay. So, yeah, I guess this, and this is quite useful, obviously, again, he knows his stuff, and it's kind of like a recommendation of of things to watch, because it will be like, oh, that was the best film of the year, so instead of watching, I don't know, Step Brothers in 2008, you can actually watch the the best film from 2008, uh, as per a film critic like Patrick Burton himself. Yeah, most of these aren't too obscure, so I don't think I'll put too many people off. Well, you've got mainstream... (laughs) <laughs> how dare you <laughs> no it's interesting you've yes. got you've got different picks without further ado we'll start in 2002 so in 2002 my favourite film is The Lord of the Rings The Two Towers okay that doesn't need too much introduction it does not I think most people have seen this film and you've been watching The Lord of the Rings films recently as well haven't you yeah I I think when you grow up with Lord of the Rings and then you return to it at a later date, you kind of think, oh, I won't enjoy it as much as I did when I was younger. But you almost realise how good it was and how it was wasted on you as a child because there's so many other yeah. things that you start to notice. Yeah, they're just such well-made films. They're so immersive. And it's like a comfort blank every time you return mm. to Lord of the Ring- Rings films. So a quick side question. Do you have a favourite out of the three Lord of the Rings? I don't, actually. They're pretty much on par, but... I'd probably go to the third one the most because it's the big finale with all the all the plots coming together to form a nice cohesive story. Nice. And before we actually go on, I think it's worth saying that do you know how many are uh, best picture winners of that year? I don't know. Okay. <laughs> I could quickly search it up. So the best picture of that year was Chicago. Okay. Which is fine. <laughs> but it's not Lord of the Rings, you know what I mean? Yeah. But I can the understand Oscars that. don't often get it right, so... Ooh, little dig there at the Oscars. Hope they're not listening. Probably not. <laughs> so, shall we move on to 2003? Yeah, let's keep rattling on through the, the years. The best film of 2003 is Kill Bill Volume 1, which we watched recently. We did. It was one of the Tarantino films that I hadn't previously seen. Mm-hmm. Soundtrack was... Ridiculous. Banging. Yeah. Yes. And just generally, it was, uh, again, with Tarantino, it was a different film. It was something that just, for me, it didn't follow the natural progression of a film. It was just so random in its storytelling and obviously what happens. And some of it was just crazy. It's uh, a what, crazy film, yeah. What do you most like about it? How does it differ from other Tarantino films? I think it's the most enjoyable. Because even though I love films like Pulp Fiction, that film's two hours 45. It can drag at points. It's mostly dialogue heavy. But this is like no filler whatsoever. It's a straight action pretty much. 
like only an hour and a half, so I could watch that film every year. It's probably my most rewatched film. Yeah, and on that female protagonist as well. Mm. And on that point, with uh, regards to things like Hateful Eight, which was one of his latter films, it, as good as it was, it did feel like there was a bit of filler or quite a lot yeah. of dialogue that maybe wasn't necessary. In most story. of his films, he doesn't quite know when to cut scenes out. He likes to just drag it out, which isn't always a bad thing. It can be quite immersive, but they're hard to rewatch. Yeah. But Kill Bill is not one of them. There we go. And you were one when that film came out, so hopefully you weren't watching it then. No, I had <laughs> to wait until I was ten. Okay. Still a little young. <laughs> yeah. Okay, 2004, the best film was Shaun of the Dead, which I think is another one most people have seen. But again, so good. Have you seen it? I have, yeah. It was one of my, probably in my top 10 comedies. And obviously, those, those two, Simon Pegg and Nick Frost as a pairing, that and Hot Fuzz, just incredible films. Yeah. I think they'll go down as like the best British films of the, the, the 2000s. Yeah, part of the Edgar Wright Cornetta trilogy with uh, The World's End as well. Mm. Shaun of the Dead is definitely the best one, I think. It's just so snappy, the editing is on point. Reoccurring jokes and gags. Do you think it was one of the first zombie films that was actually a comedy because there seemed to be a lot more recently like Zombieland etc but it that definitely was definitely start the trend because at the time I don't think zombie films were that popular really well they were certainly frowned upon mm. they were yeah. a bit dead yeah <laughs> <laughs> sorry that was poor <laughs> but since Shaun of the Dead I think they've had a real resurgence and been taken seriously as well around this time 28 days later and more recently trained to Basan so mm. some real solid zombie films yeah and you a fan of uh, Simon Pegg particularly as an actor have you seen other yeah, films he's a very charming actor mm. very relatable yeah okay moving on to 2005 another horror type film okay The Descent fantastic I do like this film but 2005 was a bit of a rough year I was looking through my back catalogue of viewings and I couldn't find many great 2005 films Batman Begins Brokeback Mountain, I think. Mm. But they don't quite deserve to be top no, of a year. No, I probably wouldn't even give The Descent a 10. Mm-hmm. But it's still a great horror film. Yeah. I thought it's quite a recent watch. Yeah. Have you seen The Descent? I have. Uh, I remember it. I remember being pretty scared by it. Mm. it. It did have its moments and it felt quite claustrophobic. What I like about The Descent is there's different layers of horror within the film. Because even when they're just traversing around the caves, it's really claustrophobic and, in that regard, scary. But also there's the creatures that come later on. So there's different elements of scariness. Mm. And with that, it's almost worth not seeing, because these creatures are scary, but in horror films it's sometimes scarier not seeing what's attacking you or what's about to attack you because there's a fear of the unknown. Yeah, definitely. What won the best picture in the Oscars for that year? I think this is one of the most controversial years for the Oscars because Crash won it, which I have not seen, but it's kind of like a racial story narrative and very pandering, very Oscar baity, and most people are very annoyed that Brokeback Mountain didn't win. Mm. Do you think that some some films? Uh, I remember Kate Winslet quotes it in the in Extras, the Ricky Gervais TV show. She says that um, obviously some roles and even some films are designed to win awards or. Do you think some companies maybe make films to do that? 100%. Most of those films come around like December, January time, when they're just going to get like the notice of the Oscars the most, which often comes around in March. 
and you can see a real like surgence of like Oscar Beatty films around that time, mostly like true to life stories and biopics and Holocaust films, as Kate Winslet <laughs> pointed out in extras. Yeah. So the last four films have been, you know, quite a lot of death. What's the uh, 2006? Well, we're not stopping there <laughs> with The Departed, Martin Scorsese film, mm. which did win the best picture for that year. It's on your watch list, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. So what what can you tell us about that film? I haven't seen it in a long time, so my memory of it's a lot rusty, but it's kind of a crime film based off the South Korean thriller Infernal Affairs, starring Leonardo DiCaprio, Matt Damon and Jack Nicholson. If Jack Nicholson's in a film, I'm pretty much guaranteed to like it. Mm. And he's on form here. Okay. It's a really manic, psych, psycho performance. Is this kind of in the middle of Scorsese's career, towards the end? What kind of? Well, Scorsese's been making films since the 60s, really, and he hasn't mm. really stopped. The mm. quality hasn't really dipped. Mm. He's one of those directors where he's just got so much longevity. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, I'll give that a watch very soon on my watch, watch list. And in 2007, the best film, I think, was No Country for Old Men. What about Superbad? <laughs> Superbad? Oh. It's up there. Great comedy, but No Country for Old Men mm. is a different tier, mate. So this is something we watched at the uh, back end of last year, and it was some of the scenes in there, particularly there's a scene with Javier Bardem in, in a shop with an old guy that I've rewatched on YouTube yeah. several times. type in the coin toss scene on YouTube. And that will hopefully that will lead yeah, you on to actually watch the film. It's one of the, the best scenes of all time. Mm. The editing, the dialogue. Yeah, Javier Bardem's performance is manic, mm. and it's just a real like neo western, a cat and mouse game across like the back ends of Texas. Mm. A lot of death, a lot of blood, a lot of excitement. And that was something. Uh, it's the Coen Brothers, isn't it? Who you mentioned in the director's episode mm. as being some of your favourite directors. Yeah, so. mostly because of their versatility. They can go from like dark comedies to straight up like laugh out loud comedies to really dark, disturbing films like No Country for Old Men. Lovely. Hmm. 2008. I think most people have seen this, The Dark Knight. Oh, brilliant. Have, uh, have you seen it? I have. Really? It's, it's, uh, it, I watched it in a school classroom, um, which is really weird. It was in the <laughs> English class. And... Just ever since then, I've thought it's one of the best films I've ever seen. And I don't know why. It just it has everything about it. The Joker's the, the, one of the scariest villains I've ever seen. Batman is, is so cool. The, the, the start of that film is incredible. Mm. And I don't know if I'll ever see a better beginning or a better way to introduce characters. Yeah, introduce the villain of the film. I love the focus on practical effects in that film as well. So like when the truck totally flips over... On the highway, that's done for real. They really did like flip a truck in that, mm. and you can tell extra effort was put in to make it feel authentic and real. And that was Christopher Nolan's kind of three-part Batman series, wasn't it? Yeah, the Dark Knight trilogy. Yeah, and as good as the other two were, Dark Knight was my favourite. But also, you had Bane in Dark Knight Rises, and that was another fantastic film. Mm. Moving on to 2009, the best film, I think, was Coraline, Ooh. which is maybe a less popular opinion. I think most people like Coraline, but I don't think many would say it's their favourite film from a certain year. I like the way that it's completely different from the preceding seven films that we've discussed, mm, Yeah. in that, you know, all of them include a lot of death, probably a bit of sadness. Well, most of them are dark. 
Mm. And Coraline is most certainly a dark film. Scary as shit, <laughs> to be honest. I've not seen it. You've not seen Coraline? No, it's on the watch list. It's a stop-motion animation, which I really like. So when they move actual figurines and take pictures of them in microseconds, so when you replay all those pictures in a row, it mimics movement. And I love that. It just feels so real. With regards to stop motion, have you seen quite a lot of films that have that? There isn't many, but where there is, I've tried to watch them. Leica is a film studio that I've made a lot. I think they made Coraline, they made Cuba and the Two Strings. I like Nightmare on Elm Street and Tim Burton's stop motion films. Mm. And Marion Max is a great stop motion adult. Yeah. No, and not that I've heard people say this, but it'd be interesting to get your take. Um, I imagine sometimes with animation, it's kind of you relate it more to watching it as a kid, or you know, maybe not always w- wanting to watch an animation because you're not in the mood. Do you think that there are plenty of animations that cater not just like Disney and Pixar do for like the younger audience, but that do cater for adults and that are very good films? Well, I think Pixar caters to adults just as much as kids, really. Mm. Like. The amount of adults I see when I go to see a Pixar film. And they haven't got kids 50, with them. 50-50, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think, I hate it when people say kids film, when they mean animated film. Because mm. animation's for everyone. Yeah. Animation are some of my, like, favourite films. And especially a Tim Burton one, like Coraline or The Corpse Bride, that seems to be even more yeah. adult-themed. Tim Burton wasn't actually involved with Coraline. But oh. Yeah. yeah. Warning, Coraline is a lot scarier than you'd expect. <laughs> a lot of scary scenes in be careful when you watch it. 2010 is back to the basic films. Inception, which Ooh. I think the whole world has seen. Yep. Great film. Another Leonardo DiCaprio entry there. Yeah, great visual effects. Really innovative. And I love the creativity for like a big blockbuster film. And I think Christopher Nolan has been great and like showing that blockbuster films can be different and unique and like introspective. You don't have to just be dumbed down for audiences. Because most people that watch Inception don't really understand it on the first time, and that's great. Mm. Gets you back for the second. Mm. I can't remember it too well, but what did you make of the ending? The ending's great. So, when they does the little spinny top. Mm. I, to be fair, I, I think we could possibly go into spoiler alert for this one, considering yeah. how everyone's seen it. And if you haven't, you can skip the next 30 so seconds. So there's a bit of interpretation whether he's still in a dream or whether he's in reality by the end of the film because there's some overlap in the imagery you see with his kids at the start and also at the end and the spinny top isn't shown to fall but it might you know what I mean Mm. it's interesting Mm. and we'll go to 2011 2011 is Drive directed by Nicholas Winding Refn and starring Ryan Gosling Probably something that's not as popular, but um, it's an extremely good film. Mm. It's definitely got a dedicated following. Really good neo-noir film. Some really interesting chase scenes in that in cars. Not how you'd normally shoot them, like not Fast and Furious, but like really immersive. Can I... I haven't... Again, I haven't seen this one for years. What is the main premise? The main premise is that Ryan Gosling is a getaway driver. He works as a Hollywood stuntman in the day and basically works as a getaway driver at night for criminals. But he gradually gets a love interest in Carey Mulligan and starts to involve himself in that family life because she has a young boy as well. But he digs too deep, really, 
and gets in trouble with the wrong people. That sounds very good. Mm. I think it's worth a watch. With regards to Ryan Gosling, I've always been a big fan. It's probably been a man crush of mine. Definitely a man crush. <laughs> in Place Beyond the Pines, which is another Gosling film, it's the kind of five-minute intro when he's walking and the, the camera's following him. and He goes into a bicycle ring, I think he rides a bike. I just think he's very cool in that as well. He's so cool. Moving on to 2012, the best film that year was The Hunt, which is more of an obscure film, and I recommend it. Like, definitely. I think it's the first foreign language film I've mentioned. It's Danish, but don't let that put you off. Starring Mads Mikkelsen, which I think most people will recognise from. Like, big mainstream films like Casino Royale, who played a villain in that. And it's a really kind of disturbing film about a teacher that gets accused of being a paedophile, really. Wrongly accused. And it's just the aftermath of that accusation. Wow. It doesn't really, it's not black and white, it doesn't take sides, but it just shows how this could, this rumour could like deteriorate someone's life so quickly and how his friends and family can turn against him. Mm. It's one of the films that made me cry. I don't often cry at films, but there's a scene in the church where he just breaks down and that got the waterworks going. So that's a very interesting topic because in, in terms of when, especially now you can kind of say that person is something that they might not be, even without evidence. So that's quite interesting to see how he react to it, how his family might react to it. Mm, it's a very relevant film in the Me Too era. Mm. Not necessarily saying that you can't accuse people, mm. but that let's give people a chance before they're wrongly, like, before they're convicted and saying you're guilty. Yeah. You don't know that. That's definitely an interesting theme. And I like the fact that you, some, you do see it quite a lot with foreign films, that they're not, they're not afraid to... To no, go into they answer. tackle issues that most mainstream American films wouldn't. Exactly. You wouldn't see many films about like paedophiles. Yeah. Or accused paedophiles. Unless it's like Spotlight, which was about Catholic priests. And that's why um, I'd like to briefly mention Incendies, which is a French-Canadian film we watched last week. And I know it's not on this list, but it was a foreign film that wasn't afraid to... I think it was looking at the problems in uh, is it Palestine. I think so, yeah. Yeah, and uh, based on a based on a true story, just not afraid to some of the things you see, kind of would didn't expect to see it, and you might not expect to see it in a in a Western kind of British or American yeah, made like film. Yeah, kids being shot in the head. Exactly. Yeah, not shying away from showing the true horrors of war. Yeah. Not watering down or desensitizing. There we go. Hmm. And moving on to 2013, I think it's another film that most people have seen, or I'd heard they'd seen, The Wolf of Wall Street, another Martin Scorsese film. And I'm always surprised that this film was directed by a 70-plus-year-old. It's, like, so X-rated and full of nudity and sex and drugs. It's so and inappropriate at times. behind the camera is just this little 70-year-old Italian-American, and it's so strange. <laughs> But he directs the shit out of this, yeah. <laughs> there's there's so many moments of that film that you just think, wow, are they going to do that? Yes, they are. And I think of examples like when he was drugged and trying to get in his car. Mm-hmm. Um, or even when he was going crazy at his wife with a, with a gun or getting near, I think it was dwarves into the office. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's not a PC film. And I think there's been a lot of misreadings of it saying that Martin Scorsese condones this sort of behaviour. I think... That was Mark Kermode's review. Mm. One of the only Mark Kermode reviews that I strongly disagree with. 
because it's not condoning it. By the end of the film, you're exhausted by the excessive behaviour of the characters and you just never want to experience the life they have. The amount of stress and anxiety and ultimately, like, punishment they go through because he ends up in prison at the end. So I don't get how that condones the behaviour. Yeah, I wouldn't say it particularly glamorises and I definitely left that film thinking that's the completely opposite of where I want to be in life. By, by the end, As you say, by the end of it, they're just... It even didn't look that good during, like, <laughs> it just looked a bit too crazy and, and, and silly and they were getting... But, and, and even, have you seen Jordan Belfort speaking after? It's funny that he said the film didn't even do the life justice, yeah. which is uh, incredible to it's think. Yeah. yeah. What, what else do they do that's not shown? I think the, the only criticism is that Leonardo DiCaprio's character should be more of a scumbag than he is. Like, we ultimately like the character because it is Leonardo DiCaprio and he's so charming. But he ruins so many people's lives in this. Yeah. So, whether we should go out thinking he's a piece of shit rather than, is he? You yeah. Know what I mean? And I think that goes, in my experience of working, there's a lot of companies that kind of do that and take advantage of people to, to get money. And that's probably what that company did. I can't quite remember what they were selling or trading, but. Yeah, just ripping ordinary people off yeah. basically well to end on that dark tone it was, it was a fantastic film yeah. so so fun mm. it's like a three hour film that I could watch multiple times okay and moving on to 2014 is my favourite film of all time Whiplash a great 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 film yeah tell us more about that why is it so amazing Ooh, where do we start I think J.K. Simmons is the MVP in this. He plays a pretty psychotic band teacher who is just a horrible person. He forces the people in the band to train extra hard and basically drives our protagonist, played by Miles Teller, insane. He just wants to be the best drummer ever and J.K. Simmons' character just tries to push him to the limit. And it's a really interesting character piece between these two characters and the back and forth. One character trying to be the best and the other one trying to make them the best, but each one being very volatile. The editing is so sharp. I love the golden light colour grading and the lighting, and it has one of the best endings of all time. Yeah, I'd agree with that. And the, obviously the soundtrack is something that we listen to as well, mm-hmm. outside of the film, which always says a lot about it. If you absolutely hate jazz music, I wouldn't recommend this film, because there is a lot of jazz music, but I don't think that deter you too much. No. Okay, moving on to 2015, Mad Max Fury Road. It was a great year for film in 2015, actually, with films like The Revenant, which came close to ending up on this list. But Mad Max is another film that you just have a blast with. I love the attention to detail with all like the production design, the cars, the costume design, the makeup. It feels very integrated. The world is very believable. Well, not believable. But <laughs> it feels so like detailed. So, do you know? I went into the film not knowing too much about it. Um, is it any relevance to the? How much relevance is it to the previous Mad Max films with? Mel Gibson. Yeah. I have not watched those films, and so I don't think it matters one bit. This film doesn't have much of a plot, to be honest. They just drive to one spot and drive back mm. with a lot of action happening in between. But the action is everything. It's, it's so good. Yeah, it's, I think that's a good example of 
not having sometimes maybe you don't need the the most engaging story or characters but it can just be the action itself and the and the I don't know what it is but it is a it goes against what I usually think in terms of well the action's pointless because I don't care what happens to that character if he dies or not which is the problem with recent films but then that film goes against that grain I don't quite know why well, I think George Miller gives you just enough for the characters for you to engage with them like Furiosa is a pretty interesting character played by Charlize Theron and it's just like an emotional attachment to the wives who want to leave this horrible controlling husband but and Tom Hardy obviously is pretty Tom good Hardy's again Tom Hardy's given nothing Tom Hardy's amazing and he's a beautiful man, so <laughs> you could watch him do all. Yeah, the action is everything. And it lives up to its name, Mad Max. It is truly a mad film. Mm. Okay, moving on to 2016, Moonlight. The best picture of that year. We also watched this recently, didn't we? Yes, I uh, really enjoyed it. I was particularly impressed, uh, you know, as in the last few months I've paid more attention to how it's shot and how it's edited. And I was particularly impressed with the camera work, the way they kind of moved the camera around the central characters. I did like, I liked the story. I just thought it was a completely different film. And I, I like films, without spoiling it too much, that don't take place in one year. And so you see the characters through different ages. And as you actually pointed out, it was one of the best types of film that the, in terms of the characters look very similar to, like the seven-year-old boy looks very similar and believable to the sixteen-year-old yeah. boy. Yeah, so the film's basically split up into three chapters of following this man called Chiron from when he's about ten years old to up until he's like twenty-five. And I don't think the people actually look that similar, but the way they embody the same character is so beautifully realised. You just believe that it is the same person. And for three actors to be on that same like level is just amazing. And as you said, yeah, the camera flows beautifully in that great score. Yeah, and I think it achieves what a film Boyhood by Richard Linklater didn't for me. For Boyhood, I just didn't attach to the main character, so therefore I didn't care about his life. It's a three-hour film about a boy that I didn't care about. But Moonlight is completely different. You feel such empathy for Chiron that you don't want anything bad to happen. But unfortunately, a lot of bad things do happen to you. So 2016? We're on to 2017. Oh, wow. We're on to Blade Runner 2049 of 2017. You have not seen either Blade Runner films, have you? No, I I think that's some of the... Oh, I can see we've actually got a poster up on the wall. We do. Blade Runner, the original. But it's, it's definitely one of those films where... I can't believe I've not seen it, and it's a bit of a shocking one for someone who does like film as much as me. Yeah. The I I do want to. Should I watch the original before going into the new one? Or I don't think it matters too much, but I don't know why you wouldn't, because you've got to see both films anyway. They're both great. Yeah. So what's so good about? Because uh, obviously, when you have a film that comes out in the eighties or nineties, and then you do a film ten, twenty years later, uh, there is a risk there. It's made it by different people. Doesn't work. Yeah. No. But how does how does this one? Well, the start is directed by Denis Villeneuve, who's made some of the best films of the past decade. He made Arrival, Prisoners, Sicario, Incendies, which we mentioned. And he just has such a strong visual like directing style. 
Like, this film looks gorgeous. Roger Deakins, cinematography, the colours just pop out, the visual effects are amazing. And another Ryan Gosling film. He's a very good protagonist. He doesn't get too much character, but I think he's a more interesting protagonist than Harrison Ford in the original. And I think the film is actually better because it delves a bit deeper into the philosophies surrounding, like, replicants, what makes us human, like, how would we know if we're even human or if we're just an android. Yeah. It's and definitely worth it. I don't watch. think it's for everyone. It's quite cerebral. It's quite slow-paced. It's very long. But it's a very mesmer- mesmerising film. So we've got three years to go. The final three. 2018 is Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, our second animated film, which you have not seen. I don't know how. But <laughs> Again, actually, similar to Blade Runner, it's a Spider-Man film. Ticks all boxes. I've seen all the other Spider-Man films a majority of times. It's an animated film. Uh, I'm actually actually got to 15 minutes in, and then I stopped it for some reason. I can't remember what why. What is wrong with you? Yeah, sometimes you just you know when you're just not in the mood. Yeah, yeah. you seem to do that quite. <laughs> yeah, I've definitely turned off some brilliant films in the past. Yeah, Spider-Man is just another like really comforting film. Like when you watch it, you just feel so warm and happy. Is it was this not a bit of a surprise though? Um, in terms of we we'd had three different actors playing Spider-Man. Why? Where, where? Where would this come from? Because it isn't Marvel, is it? Or... Mm, it's a Sony film as well, which aren't often that great, especially Sony animations. But I think it's quite fresh because it focuses not on Peter Parker necessarily, it focuses on Miles Morales, who is our protagonist, which gives a bit more diversity because it is a black protagonist. And the film is just so vibrant and colourful, both in its visual style and its soundtrack. And it just feels like a comic book come to life. People often say that about normal comic book films, but this is, to default, really a comic book film. Mm. Like, we get, like, words popping up on the screen saying the sound that we hear. Like, the 1960s, like, early Batman TV show. And, yeah, so many different Spider-Man characters and villains all come together. Yeah, uh, well, obviously being into the Spider-Verse, I'm aware that... uh... There's a lot of different Spider-Mans from different universes, which will be Mm. interesting. And moving on to 2019, which I think is a bit of an overlooked film. A lot of people did love it, but Lighthouse, directed by Robert Eggers, I believe, yes. And a really great horror film, a really disturbing horror film, set on an island with two lighthouse keepers who need to learn to work together. <laughs> that sounds like a cheesy comedy. But... Yeah, so it sounds like Brokeback Mountain too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's some homoerotic tension, but we it's love to just see. a bizarre film. Trying to describe the plot is just useless, because it's really just a mishmash of imagery and sound and disturbing like scenes. It's just weird, really weird. So it is a... Uh... It's a horror, but in a completely different way to The Descent, for example. Yeah, it's not got a cohesive narrative at all. It mm. doesn't have jump scares. It just slowly creeps under your skin and you lose track of time and space completely. Like, you just don't know how long they've been on this island. You don't know if it's been two days or four weeks or five years. Which adds to the confusion. Yeah, it's so disorienting. I saw it in cinemas and I left the cinema just a bit dazed. Had to take a moment to myself. And that's, again, an unusual one. I've not really heard it around, not heard too much talk about it. Yeah, 
it did get nominated for one Oscar for cinematography. And if you follow some YouTubers like Chris Stuckman, they really loved the film. I think Chris Stuckman gave it an A plus and said it was his favourite film of that year. But yeah, it didn't get much publicism. Is that a word? We'll go with it. Yeah, I think it's a word. And finally, 2020, when COVID hit. 2020, one of the worst years for film. Not really film's fault, but COVID happened, so studios are a bit put off putting films into cinemas. Cinemas were closed. So people had to really dig deep into like the streaming services and just keep a keen eye out for new releases. And I think with the Oscars, hardly anybody really knew the Best Picture nominees. But this was one of them, Minari, which is a really lovely film. It's about South Korean immigrants who moved to America to start a farm and the grandma comes to stay with them. And this is a really cute film. A lot of very charming characters, but it has quite a deep emotional connection. Really lovely cinematography, very colourful and warm, but also hits hard at the right points. Yeah, there's not too much to say. Is that the second international film? It's not. It's an American film, but most of it is in the South Korean language, yes. Yeah, there's so, not too much to say about Minari, but it's a very sweet, lovely film, and I think you can rent it on Amazon Prime hmm. now. Were there any other close ones in 2020? Yeah. Hon- Honest Faith, for example, Liam Neeson. <laughs> that trash film. <laughs> yeah, I think that's the only film I gave a 9 plus to. There okay. was a few 8 out of 10s. I really liked The Sound of Metal. I really liked Charlie Kaufman's I'm Thinking of Ending Things, which is on Netflix. Not really a happy film. Very depressing. But, yeah, it's a bit rough. What about, obviously, we're recording this on the 29th of April, 2021. Has anything been released in the last four months? I'll check my Letterboxd account right now, but I don't think I've seen any 2021 films. For those who don't know, Letterboxd is a platform that you can use to rate films, create a watch list. And I've been using IMDB, which is International Movie Database, but Letterboxd is is a better layout and it's even more kind of... Letterboxd is more like a social media for film fans, where IMDb is more like an encyclopedia. Yeah. So the, I've got four films on my 2021 like page. Bad Trip, which was a prank comedy film. Okay, it's on Netflix. I watched a Pelly documentary about the footballer. Also just fine. Malcolm and Marie... Caused a bit of a stir, starring Zendaya and John David Washington. Very pretentious. It looked nice, but it didn't have much to say. Very up its own arse. Like and then the miniseries WandaVision, which I think a lot of people have seen on Disney+, Plus, which was decent. It started off really strong, but kind of petered out to typical Marvel fare. Yeah. Okay. I'm optimistic for the future. Yeah. Yeah. I think um, obviously with this quite long break, that hopefully will be a a crazy release of things when the cinemas start opening. You you know you have things like Spectre and Quiet Place Two just kind of waiting. Not Spectre, sorry. Spectre. No time to die. No time to die, which is the new James Bond film. They're they're kind of waiting at the wings for the cinemas to open. Mm. It'll be released. There's going to be be a period soon where it just unloads. I think coming to the end of 2021 still. And early 2022 is when everything's just going to come out. And it's going to be heaven, because I miss cinemas so bad. (laughs) So that's a fantastic 
list there from 2002 up till 2020 that hopefully if you're a fan of films but maybe not sure quite where to go next, what to watch, there's definitely some interesting ones to pursue, um, especially different genres as well. There is quite a lot of depressing ones there, but <laughs> but also a lot of action and a few ones that you wouldn't necessarily think that's the best film of the year. Yeah, there's a few obvious ones in there which I hope most people have seen, but still, if you haven't, get to it, you know what I mean? So your number one, obviously, is Whiplash, as we've discussed. Um, could you pick a number two or one that you'd recommend to someone tonight, you know, the same day they're listening to this, go and watch it, and you won't be disappointed? Is Spirited Away still on Netflix? I think it might be. If Spirited Away is still on Netflix and you have not seen Spirited Away, which is an anime, go and see it, because it's amazing. Mm. It's phenomenal. And it's not something, something that you'd think, oh, I'll, I'll watch that. So it's a bit... Mm. Unusual. Well, I think it's a nice stepping stone for people that aren't sure about anime because it is like the basic anime that most people have seen and hopefully it'll get you into more Japanese films. Yeah. Well, it's uh, so brilliant that you were able to kind of come up with this uh, list using the Letterboxd account and hopefully give some advice to people. We're not sponsored by Letterboxd, by the way. No, we just keep (laughs) (laughs) mentioning it, get a bit of marketing. In future episodes, we will hopefully be looking at international films. That's definitely something that uh, Mm -hmm. Patrick would like to discuss. And if you've got any topics that you'd like to hear, then feel free to message in. Have you got anything to add on top of your last kind of 19 years of films? I think I'd just recommend trying different films out. Like, don't stay within your comfort zone. Sometimes it's nice to just watch MCU films and Harry Potter. And I've got nothing against those films, I love them, but if you're just watching those, you're not really expanding or broadening your horizons. So if there's a little weird film that looks okay or looks the plot interests you, check it out. You might really like it. Yeah, and a prime, prime example of that for me is watching Parasite. Never really watched an international film and came out of that thinking, wow, unbelievable, and my whole... Felt like my life had been changed, <laughs> which sounds a bit it's weird. That good. But films can do that to you. They can really make you think in a different way. And the, the following day, you're just kind of thinking a lot about it and you're wishing that you could go back in time and see it again for the first time mm-hmm. to have that reaction. Definitely. But thank you very much. Uh, we hope to have you on the podcast again very soon. I hope you enjoyed it.